Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Analyzing the spread and survival of Islamic legal ideas and commentaries in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean littorals, Islamic law in circulation focuses on Shafism, one of the four Sunni schools of Islamic law. It explores how certain texts shaped, transformed, and influenced the juridical thoughts and lives of a significant community over a millennium in between Asia, Africa, and Europe. By examining the processes of how the spread of legal texts and their roles in society, as well as thinking about how Afrasian Muslims responded to these new arrivals of thoughts and texts, Mahmoud Kuria weaves together a narrative with the textual descendants from places such as Damascus, Mecca, Cairo, Malabar, Java, Aceh, and Zanzibar to tell a compelling story of how Islam contributed to the global history of law from the 13th to the 20th century. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk about Professor Mahmoud Kuria's approach to bridging the fields of legal history, Islamic studies, and oceanic history, discuss new theoretical and methodological openings in Islamic studies, and also sketched out a cosmopolitan world peopled by Karimi merchants, as well as Egyptian, Syrian, Persian, Jawi, Hindi, and Swahili scholars. To learn about these issues and more, Join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Mahmoud Kuria, the author of the encyclopedic book, Islamic Law in Circulation, Shafi Texts Across the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the multiple routes and routes of this school of jurisprudence, and also discuss new theoretical approaches to Islamic studies and transregional history. Mahmoud Kuria is a researcher at Leiden University in the Netherlands and a visiting faculty of history at Ashoka University in India. Earlier, he worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the Dutch Institute in Morocco, 
the International Institute for Asian Studies and the African Studies Center at Leiden. He received his PhD in global history from Leiden University in 2016. Before this, he studied at the Center for Historical Studies of JNU in India for his, mat- for his MA and MPhil in Ancient Indian History and at Darul Huda Islamic University and the University of Calicut, both in Kerala, India, for bachelors. In addition to numerous academic journal articles and book chapters, he has also co-edited Malabar in the Indian Ocean, Cosmopolitanism in a Maritime Historical Region, and Islamic Law in the Indian Ocean World, Texts, Ideas, and Practices. Currently, he is writing a book on the matriarchal Muslim communities in East Africa and South and Southeast Asia. Welcome, Mahmoud, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your great, incredible book today. Uh, thank you so much, Kelvin, for having me and for discussing this book. So perhaps could you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, which is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had? Uh, Well, I was born and brought up in Malabar in northern Kerala, uh, which is in uh, southwest India, uh, where I also completed my undergraduate studies. Uh, And I went to Delhi for my MA and MPhil uh, at JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University. So for my PhD, I went to Leiden uh, Leiden University Institute for History. But the two years I spent studying uh, MA was possibly a major turning point in my academic orientation. I uh, specialized in ancient Indian history and archaeology. And my MPhil dissertation was on intersections between as a textual archaeology and landscape archaeology, uh, where I looked at folks, uh, the shared sacred landscapes of the Western Ghats. But I also had done a few courses in medieval and modern Indian histories. Uh, at JNU, the program is uh, is organized in such a way that, you know, uh, you have to choose between uh, one of these three areas. And because I was in ancient history, most of the courses were in ancient Indian history, but uh, fortunately, uh, I did some electives from medieval and modern histories as well. And I wrote a seminar. I wrote seminar papers in in both these areas as well. Especially in medieval history, we had uh, some courses from Professor Yogesh Sharma on the Indian Ocean world, and I, I think his courses got me hooked uh, by the breadth and depth of the ocean. And as a person coming from Malabar, which is very close to the Arabian Sea, or on the coast of, you know, uh, Arabian Sea, I could easily relate with many points and discussions in the course. And eventually, I ended up writing a 100-page seminar paper for him on the transition phase of the Indian Ocean from the so-called Arab or Persian or Islamic uh, lake to the uh, European one. So eventually, I ventured uh, to explore this further for my PhD by looking more specifically at the Indian Ocean, which sort of, you know, forms uh, the book that I uh, ended up writing. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for for that account. Um, And I think that this is a good point to talk about your book and how you came to write Islamic law in circulation. I just really would like to know, how did the idea develop and what was the research process like? Uh, What archives do you turn to and how was your writing experience? Uh, So uh, because the book is based on my doctoral dissertation, as as I was just mentioning, 
the question takes me back to a time when I had uh, conceived the topic for my PhD. Initially, the project was titled, I would say, Ocean of Texts, uh, mainly because I wanted to study the kind of texts that were being circulated among the Muslim communities of the Indian Ocean in South Asia, coastal South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, East Africa, Southeast Africa, South Africa, etc. Uh, for brevity, let's call them, you know, Indian Ocean Muslims. So my immediate starting point was, of course, Malabar, not only because it is a place where I grew up, but also its rich textual traditions continue to be ignored in the broader Indian Ocean studies. It is a place where, you know, people like, for example, Vasco da Gama landed, a place that has seen the arrival of almost all the major European and Middle Eastern imperial aspirations from Mamluks to Ottomans to Persians to Portuguese, Dutch, French, English, and so forth. And there are too many works written on many of these regimes uh, in, in, in the present academia and their encounters with the so-called Asia. Yet the works produced by the people from these regions historically are hardly explored. In the case of Malabar, not only this anti-Portuguese, uh, like possibly, in the case of Malabar, only this one text called Tufatul Mujahideen, an anti-Portuguese text, is what you know most historians make use of, as if it is the only text written in the region. So I was interested in surveying and then studying all sort of uh, different texts written in the region in comparison and in connection with other places in the broader Indian Ocean. That is how I thought, you know, I would title the project as Ocean of Texts. But I noticed that there were, and then I noticed that there were three major categories of texts uh, produced by the people in the region, uh, in Malabar, but also in the broader Indian Ocean. One is law, then mysticism, and the third one is ethics. So I wrote a proposal and synopsis uh, by making each of these categories of texts as different parts in the dissertation. I started with law, uh, but then I got stuck with it. I soon realized that there is too much to do with the law itself. So after reading extensively in the first six months on diverse aspects of Islamic law, which I thought I knew very well, as I had studied Islam back in Malabar, but within a breadth of a book, I realized that I hardly know anything about it academically. And then after some uh, extensive reading, I visited a lot of manuscript collections in different parts of the Indian Ocean, from Madras or Chennai to Hyderabad, Delhi, Bandache, Achebasa, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, and so forth. And at that time, too, I was collecting a lot of materials on mysticism and ethics. But when I returned to Leiden after uh, about six uh, seven months of fieldwork, I realized that I wouldn't be able to cover most of the legal text itself. And the Leiden University Library special collections proved this uh, to me time and again. So traveling across the uh, Indian Ocean countries and collecting materials from very small private collections to the large national libraries and talking to a lot of people who still study or teach these texts have been one of the most rewarding experience of doing research for this book, which, you know, eventually I decided to focus only on law and within law, uh, you know, uh, I had, I was fortunate to interview a lot of, uh, talk to a lot of people uh, who continue to uh, use this, uh, the same historical text written, you know, several centuries earlier uh, in the Middle East, in South Asia and Southeast Asia and continue to be taught and studied. 
So I would say if I were studying a different topic in history, I may not have ventured to travel to these places, uh, to these many places and talk to, you know, those kind of people who continue to use the uh, same text. So that was one of the most rewarding experiences, I would say, of studying such a topic and writing uh, this book. That's wonderful. And I think that, you know, your book really reflects the sort of transregional, transnational itineraries that you took during your fieldwork as well. Um, here, I want to reflect a bit on you as a historian that's situated between several fields. So Islamic studies, South and Southeast Asian studies and African studies. Can you tell us how you became interested in using oceanic histories as a framework or as a methodological approach and considering your interest in the circulation of religious and legal formations how did your engagement with the literature on the indian ocean and the mediterranean inform your writing what might these area studies fields stand to gain from transregional and oceanic approaches um, as i was mentioning one of the major turning points uh, possibly is the uh, courses that i did with uh, professor yoga sharma at jnu uh, on the Indian Ocean Studies, but also at the uh, same time, I had few friends from international relations, uh, sociology, and other uh, departments who were also interested in, in similar questions uh, from different angles, possibly from diplomacy, uh, you know, uh, or IER and so forth. But uh, Indian Ocean sort of uh, provided as uh, a vocabulary to have a lot of conversations. Uh, for me, uh, historically, for them, uh, from other perspectives. So the, you know, the inside and outside uh, classroom discussions possibly, you know, nurtured uh, more and more interest in me on uh, on taking uh, ocean as a, as a methodological framework. And of course, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, eventually, when uh, I ended up reading, for example, for Net Brothers, you know, the classic text on the Mediterranean. It makes a lot of sense to see the history of humans from the sea instead of, you know, from from the land alone. And also, like, you know, in, in all these uh, fields, as you rightly pointed out, most scholars in these fields, uh, you know, uh, uh, hardly talk to one another or make use of each other's works. There are certain works that do talk across disciplines. For example, like you know, two works that inspired me towards this research is Eng Sang Ho's Graves of Tareem and Roni Tarichi's Islam Translated. Both works are extremely well-written works that cut across uh, several disciplines, especially South Asian studies, Southeast Asian studies, Islamic studies, and so forth. In, in addition to, you know, even more uh, fields such as uh, translation studies, anthropology, historical anthropology, and so forth. Uh, but largely, the literature on the Indian Ocean often mentions the centrality of law uh, only in passing. Uh, and also, they mention, like, you know, whether it's from Kain Choudhury or what, you know, the centrality of law in enabling the transregional uh, trade and also providing mercantile security, etc. But they hardly explain what sort of law it was. So I wanted to explore uh, this particular dimension eventually when I decided to focus on law, to look at, you know, the Shafi school that was widely followed from, uh, you know, South Africa to Southeast Asia in the Indian Ocean region. And on on your question on what these fields might gain from transregional or oceanic approaches, I would say that I believe most scholars tend to see their areas as the most unique or, or exceptional historical phenomenon. 
uh, which must be very true, but also I find that it is very nationalistic or parochialistic, isn't it? You think that, like, you know, for example, your national country is the best with no rational explanation. But seeing things in a broader spectrum or zooming out of one's own research uh, regions or fields often help us understand things in a better way. The area studies and religious studies in that case have far more to gain from such a trans-regional and trans-oceanic uh, perspective. Thank you so much for that. And I think that this uh, provides a really nice segue to my next question, which more directly relates to the chapters of the book. Um, as you had mentioned, the book is the fruits of multi-sited archival research across a staggering range of libraries and archives in the UK, the Netherlands, South Africa, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It recuperates a range of primary sources and materials in various languages, including Arabic, Malay, Indonesian, Tamar, Malayalam, and Urdu. However, it never loses its fine-grained focus on the texts, biographies, networks, and communities of its historical subjects. In addition to an introduction and conclusion, it contains eight chapters broadly divided into two parts, the first providing a broad analytical framework for the study, and the second delving deep into specific texts. Can you share with us how you decided to structure the organization of the book? Uh, thank you, Kelvin, for your kind assessment of the book. Uh, in terms of the structure, indeed, after the introduction, I divided the book into two chapters. So the first one on the frameworks and the second one uh, with a closer analysis of the different texts. So the first one, uh, also not only on the frameworks, I would say it uh, gives a context uh, for the text that I eventually focus in the second part. So the context is the time and place in which Islamic law was produced and circulated from the Middle East and the Indian Ocean. Uh, and also the contributions of various uh, people, uh, communities such as, you know, uh, the Tamil uh, community or the Javis or the Swahilis uh, or the Al-Hindis to the Arab communities or Persians and so forth. And within them, like, you know, uh, different categories of, let's say, uh, Arabs and Persians, for example, the Khorasanis and the uh, and the Karimis and so forth. And also, I look at, like, you know, there in the first part on the institutions and the broader textual uh, corpus as such. We'll come to the, the details in a while. Uh, so that sort of uh, provide the broader context uh, in order to study uh, the texts uh, which are the focus of the second part. Uh, in the second part, I take each text in, in turn. Uh, basically, I look at one text and by extension, it's different uh, commentaries and super commentaries and so forth, except the last chapter, which is uh, in which I take uh, all the texts together in order to see how these texts were translated into different uh, Asian and uh, European languages and, uh, and also African, partly African languages as well. So yeah, that's how I structured the book. Uh, and one of the most striking aspects of the book that I just have to perhaps also highlight is the brief narrative interlude preceding its chapter, assuming the form and conventions of a rihla or a travelogue. Uh, through this interlude and under the stewardship of al-Shafi'i, readers are brought on a journey both across space, so from Damascus through to Cairo and Mecca, and onward to the Malabar coast and Java, 
as well as across time, so from the 13th century to the 20th century. So what informed this literary approach to structuring the narrative of the text? And how do you see the role of these interludes in relation to your broader argument? Uh, yeah, that's one of the, like, you know, I would say a little bit non-historical uh, uh, approach. Uh, but still, like, you know, I'm glad uh, that you put it in terms of a real so uh, I didn't think of it that way, but like you know, still it's interesting to see that uh, that way. Uh, one reason why I decided to put that is that um, the book you know covers a vast stretch of land uh, and period from Eastern Mediterranean to the Eastern Indian Ocean, from 13th century or a little bit even earlier. As I you know, in, in the first part of the book, I discuss you know from the 9th century onward to the 20th century. Uh, I thought like, you know, there should be some uh, anchoring point or some anchorages that binds, you know, people together or binds the narrative uh, together. That is why I had planned of writing such short snippets or epigraphs, or I would, I love to call them as epiphanies. So these epiphanies help the readers, especially non-specialist readers uh, to get a hold of the material that I was discussing across the vast stretch of time and place. Eventually, uh, after I finished writing the book, uh, I watched The House of Cards. And one of the most interesting filmmaking crafts that I loved in the series is that, you know, the small direct conversations that Kevin Spicy had with the audience. I thought that was a brilliant technique. And I think... These sort of direct conversations with the readers or audience keep them engaged with the overall plot of our works, especially if it is a lengthy uh, series or a book. That's really wonderful. And I must say they worked beautifully because these interludes really sort of provided an anchor uh, for, 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 for really tracing the narrative of the book, at least for me. And here, uh, perhaps to turn to the introduction of the book, here you outline the spread of the Shafi'i school of Islamic law across various spaces and sites inhabited by Indian Ocean Muslims. So this school of jurisprudence, as you so beautifully describe, was born in Iraq, developed in Egypt, institutionalized in the Levant and the Caspian, and attracted followers from places as diverse as southern India and Southeast Asia through to East Africa and Southern Africa. Could you provide for our listeners perhaps just a brief introduction to Shafism? So where and how did it emerge? What were some of its points of contention and divergence with other schools of jurisprudence? And what accounts for its centrality of commentaries in uh, uh, the discursive tradition of Shafism? Uh, all right. So Shafism emerged, uh, of course, from the legal thoughts of you know the eponymous uh, founder of the school, that is Idris Shafi'i, who was an Arab jurist born possibly uh, we don't know where exactly he was born, uh, but according to some uh, scholars he was born in Palestine. According to some others, uh, he was born in Yemen. But uh, when he was two years old, his mother took him to Mecca. Uh, where he uh, grew up and uh, did his initial studies. And after that, he uh, went to Medina and also studied there. And after that, he went to Baghdad. Uh, We don't know why he moved out of Baghdad, but he uh, ended up in Cairo and lived there until his death at the age, at such a young age of, I would say, 52. So 
his disciples in these places especially in baghdad and cairo uh, formed the initial frames of the shafi'i school within the 9th century and one of the major contentions that uh, he uh, had or the school in general had was you know it uh, they found a middle path between two existing streams of thoughts uh, legal thoughts uh, at that time what is generally identified as the uh, the guardians of traditions and the guardians of reasoning ahlul hadith and ahlul rai which were the two other schools which even like you know the other two sunni schools uh, hanafi school of law and then the maliki school of law so shafi uh, who had uh, studied with uh, the founders or the early uh, scholars of both schools he chose a middle path uh, by combining both the tradition and the, uh, the rational or reasoning approaches uh, to islamic law Uh, by combining by you know selecting uh, some approaches but also devising his own uh, approaches and he is the one, is uh, is one of the early scholars who devised uh, a legal theory for islam uh, through his uh, you know the famous text risala so uh, although his contributions to like the larger islamic legal tradition especially legal theory is widely appreciated uh you know his uh, scholarship uh, or the influence of his scholarship to the positive law uh after the classical period is hardly explored uh, so there are works uh, by scholars like ahmed al shamsi uh, and also some earlier uh, german scholarship uh, which also has studied uh, the early formations of shafi schools ideas shafi's ideas and shafi schools ideas especially let's say Uh, until the end of first uh, millennium of common era but we don't know what happened to the school after uh, after the first millennium so in the second millennium and third millennium so that is what i uh, try to do by looking at uh, uh, certain commentaries and the commentarial traditions in the in the shafi school thank you so much for that and i think that here uh one thing that i can think of is how you really sketch out the contours of what you call a commentarial ocean and in using this term you are drawing together two shared historical phenomena so on one hand islamic law as a genre and on the other hand oceanic networks of trade you trace how the repeated invocation of commentaries contributed to legal and intellectual debates in a shafi'i school across distant yet connected places and periods and you emphasize that this process was at once transtemporal and transregional how does this history of legal circulation challenge conventional views of historical temporality and spatial formations and what is such a view of law as transtemporal and transregional enable scholars of legal texts and institutions to see uh that's a very important question uh one reason why i uh found that especially in history when we study this uh, you know uh many many things uh we often tend to be very context specific right and we have to be very context specific but what we lose sight of uh at that point is that you know the larger picture in which this uh this uh phenomena uh came into existence so especially in the context of law law uh, in any community doesn't uh, emerge from in its own it is part of a larger uh, uh, social and intellectual exchange between different communities 
So uh, we here we see, uh, especially in the you know uh, in these texts, many scholars within in Islamic law and also otherwise uh, have studied uh, these texts, but uh, rarely they tend to see the connections between uh, regions, between scholars, and between. Uh, uh, communities and one major reason uh, is that especially those who study early uh, early uh, history of Islamic law, you often tend to look at like you know the kind of standalone texts uh, without necessarily looking at the connections between these two uh, or sort of the the texts that were written as commentaries uh, and the commentaries were often thought uh, as uh, unoriginal or you know uh, just copies of you know the previous text without any independent investigation into into the uh, legal tradition so i wanted to see you know the originality within or the kind of you know uh, creative engagements within these traditions and also see them see these texts as part of a larger network in which uh, you know uh, people were engaging with one another in a direct, uh, uh, in a direct intellectual engagement, yeah. Thank you so much for that. And here, I think that one thing that you really underscore in your answer was that you're also intervening in debates in legal history and legal theory. And the framework that you propose of a cosmopolis of Islamic law helps us make sense of the circulation and variance of Islamic law across several contexts. Uh, this term so beautifully constellates the central concerns of several of your theoretical interlocutors. So on one hand, an emphasis on the historical, contradictory, and experiential aspect of law by way of Brinkley Messick and Shahab Ahmed. On the other hand, an attention to the multi-centered connections in the concept of a cosmopolis, so by way of Sheldon Pollock and Ronit Ricci, as well as an imperative to really provincialize and disaggregate regional contexts in legal practice. So I'm thinking here of Talal Assad and Dipesh Chakrabarti. Um, what are some of the historical questions animating your attention to the interplay between transregional circulation and local negotiation? How does this framework overturn the Eurocentrism implicit in global histories of pre-modern and early modern law? Uh, to take the last part of your question first, uh, usually when we discuss law uh, and legal history uh, or uh, global history of law, we often uh, take Europe as a starting point, right? Uh, and this has been the trend, uh, whether it's in the early modern uh, legal history or, you know, modern legal history. And also all the debates related to the legal uh, pluralism, legal pluralities often take Europe as the starting point of the uh, discussions as if, you know, the pre-European uh, or non-European communities hardly had any legal uh, engagements or legal systems before the Europeans came to the scenario. And this is the, you know, if you take any any uh, works in the in the field, this is the case. Uh, you know, even in the last 20 years, this has been the major trend. So I wanted to take a uh, step uh, beyond that to see how the Asian and African communities, especially, and I would say the Indian Ocean that binds, binds both Asian and African communities together, 
had its own legal systems uh, in its own terms not necessarily in converse uh, not in necessarily in contradiction or you know in conversation with the european systems which are eventual like you know later entrant to the into the area so these legal systems existed before the europeans came and they continue to exist they continue to exist even after the europeans left as engsenho has put it uh, in a, in a different context so uh, uh, you know we need to understand these legal systems in the in their own terms and i thought you know uh, of course cosmopolis uh, is a term that is often used by various scholars in different contexts but i i still thought you know in order to bring these things together of you know different communities that uh, that we just mentioned from different parts of africa from different parts of the middle east asia uh, and they're coming together through a diverse set of texts which has of course their own you know linear or non linear interactions so like you know it sort of resonate a, a cosmopolis uh, a legal cosmopolis in that in that uh, sense and uh, conceptually it uh, it is indebted to several other scholars who have used it in the uh, in the Uh, Indian Ocean context such as Ronnie Brichi, and then South Asian context such as Sheldon Pollock, and then European context as well uh, such as you know Stephen Tolman's work on the uh, Enlightenment and so forth. Yeah, but uh, still, what makes the uh, the legal cosmopolis uh, different is its emphasis on law and also a non-European or pre-European uh, or para-European. Uh, you know uh, engagements uh, of Asian and African communities with their own legal systems, and Islamic law being one of the major uh, you know components in that cosmopolis. And within Islamic law, I I would again narrow down a Shafi uh, cosmopolis of law. So there are multiple cosmopolis within this larger uh, legal cosmopolis. That's really beautifully put, and I really like your provocation. That really, this is not, um, this is a para-European narrative that it doesn't exist. You know, solely in opposition to, or even uh, as subsidiary to, uh, what happens in Europe. But it's rather, you know, like you said, so beautifully, like para-European. Um, turning to the first part of the book, authority and motion. This part of the book is explicitly analytical and conceptual, and it provides. Important contextualization of the Shafi school from the perspective of its people, its texts, and their encounters. The first chapter, Circulation Networks, traces the emergence of an order of jurists known as the Fukaha Estate, who drew on the expansion of macro networks to facilitate the transmission of textual ideas and juridical discourses across different regions. You trace the overlapping roles of individuals, so jurists and students, as well as institutions like mosques, colleges, and legal courts, in enabling the rise of these estates. So, how did these individuals and institutions contribute to the prominence of the Shafi school in the Indian Ocean, and how do we account for the historical connections between legal institutions and commercial engagements? Uh, this is also a question that sort of goes back to um, you know the early literature in the Indian Ocean uh, studies. Uh, often, uh, one of the major contentions is that you know the traders hardly propagated any faith, but uh, we can and we do see that the, the the traders did bring you know their their own faith with them, and then they instituted different uh, forms of. Um, You know, religion in the places that they arrived or they uh, moved in between. 
and in the in, in the indian ocean context and also uh, the broader middle eastern context as well we see that uh, you know instead of seeing only certain groups and this has been a trend often that you know the narratives such as the arabs or the hadrami uh, communities spread islam into southeast asia south asia and so forth at the cost of several other communities right so there are uh, many other micro communities that are often forgotten within the let's say within the arab um, arab narratives there are the syrians egyptians and you know the iraqis and the omanis who also contributed to the making of islam and islamic law and more specifically for the shafi law if not for omanis but other places and outside the middle east you know outside the arab framework i would say there are the swahilis and then there are the uh, you know different uh, javi like you know often in the arabic uh, sources they use the uh, umbrella term javi in order to uh, refer to southeast stations but within that like you know the achanis javanis the buginis you know all these communities or the broader malay communities and also uh, different south asian communities bengalis and gujaratis malabaris and you know tamils contributed to the making of uh, islamic law and uh, by the 16th century onward we see them specifically engaging with shafi school of law and uh, the institutions as well like you know they instead of again importing only what is you know made uh, or developed in the middle east they uh, evolved or they they develop their own techniques and institutions in order to advance the school in different parts of the indian ocean so i think the uh, the nexus or the interaction between the institutions and the uh, the individuals and uh, different uh, micro communities in the uh, in this in the advancement of islamic law is very important Thank you so much for that. Uh, and I think that this brings us really nicely to your second chapter on secular, uh, circulatory text, which really focuses uh, on the circulation of texts and underscores the central importance of specific legal texts, and in particular, the Minhaj family, to the circulation and maintenance of the Shafi school among different communities. So within these networks of texts and ideas, you outline how legal circulation enabled different forms of mobility. the physical mobility of textual manuscripts from one site to another the institutional mobility in the form of the system of uh, scholarly genealogy so silsilas and graded certificates or ijazas and social mobility by means of the promotion of students into teachers could you perhaps provide a brief elaboration for our listeners on the minhaj family so what is the base text that it drew on what are some of its characteristics and why did it rise to a position of exclusive authority So more broadly speaking what is the relationship between this uh text centeredness and the normative commentarial order um i think uh, like when i start uh the uh, one chapter i think the fourth chapter by describing minhaj as a, as a text that revolutionized the shafi school of law and uh, precisely because you know the kind of uh, fame uh, or the position that the uh, the text acquired within the tradition within the shafi tradition uh, so the minhaj written by uh, nawawi uh, imam nawawi or uh, yahya bin sharaf nawawi as his you know his full name stands uh, 
the text became one of the uh, most important texts in the school primarily because of different techniques that he uh, utilized the text itself is based on um, the muharrar by uh, imam rafai uh, who is a Kasp- uh, who is a scholar from the you know caspian region al qazvin and uh, never we he uh, wanted to revise uh, the the uh, text uh, of rafi by bringing a lot of you know standard uh, different uh, techniques such as standardization hierarchization and systematization that i explain in detail uh, in the in the text uh, so his attentiveness he did this uh, by uh, uh, close by paying close attention to the larger traditions within the or the larger textual tradition within the shafi school so he sort of consulted all the texts that were uh, written before him like you know in the four five centuries before him and uh, his close attention to this larger textual corpora of the of the school enabled him to uh, write a commentary that uh, stood out among many other commentaries and many other texts that were uh, uh, uh written in the school before or after him and one 15th century sorry 14th century commentator says that you know never we had uh you know such a huge library at his disposal that uh, you, uh many of the texts which were eventually lost and many other texts were not you know accessible or even uh, uh legible for you know uh, later others so his access and his you know commitment to the larger textual uh, tradition of the school i think enabled or set a role model for several scholars uh, you know that came in the school after you know as uh, as after him as a role model so i think that also uh, made the uh, commentarial tradition or writing commentaries as a normative practice within the shafi school and this is also reflective of a larger uh, trend in the islamic uh, commentarial tradition we see that you know in the other sunni tradition in the in the shi'i uh, tradition as well Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thank you so much for for that really lucid answer. Uh in chapter 3 titled Architecture of Encounters, you incorporate both the historical actors and the circulating text, so the previous two chapters within the sing- single analytic frame of an architecture of encounters. So you underscore moments of intellectual convergence and conflict in the expansion of the Shafi school. You highlight how these texts were both producers and products of different instances of division and cohesion, so alternately connecting and disconnecting Shafi'i jurists along the lines of internal debate and external definition. And you emphasize the distinctive role played by five texts. So, in uh, in addition to the Minhaj, it's uh, the Tufa, Fat, uh, Nihaya, Eana, which followed a similar architectonic design in their form, structure, and organization. 
So why did these specific five texts assume their distinctive textual uh, interconnectivity and historical significance? And could you talk a bit more about how you're understanding the relationship between actors and texts through an architectural framework specifically? Uh so in this chapter, what I'm trying to do is like and to give all, uh, to give the readers an idea of the larger uh, texts, uh, the larger textual tradition that we were talking about, right? Uh, so I start with the uh, the foundational text uh, by written by the founder of the school, Al Um, and then its commentaries. Uh, to not commentaries, two abridgments, but then then abridgments are also in a way commentaries. So uh, by uh, two of his disciples uh, or his students, and then I uh, detail several other textual families uh, similar to the Minhaj family. There are other families. So I try to bring uh, to give an uh, bring all this together in order to give an idea for the audience what the larger corpus uh, of the of the school was especially in the second millennium even though many of these texts had you know or some of these texts had roots in the first millennium or late first millennium uh, they mostly were written uh, in the second millennium so i i highlight a group of uh, uh, families or prominent uh, uh, texts in the in the tradition so I use the uh, you know these t- uh, terms like uh, families mainly to give an idea of you know what the uh, you know the group of texts that were written one after another as commentaries or abridgments and so forth uh, provided you know and stood historically uh, as as an important uh, element as and I zoomed into these five texts mainly because you know they all are related to the Minhaj family. So my focus is on the Minhaj and the importance of the Minhaj. I just explained. We just talked about it, right? Uh, so uh, among the Minhaj, uh, among the Minhaj family, I zoom into the, these two. Uh, uh, one commentary that is the uh, Tohfa, and the Tohfa's importance also is well recognized. But the later uh, uh, other texts that I focus. Uh, Yana, uh, Kurra, and Fathul Main. All these texts are mainly I took it in order to give an Indian Persian perspective. These texts are again Fathul Main and Yana Tutalbin, for example, still widely taught and circulated in East Africa to Southeast Asia. Uh, so uh, Nihaya, uh, Nihaya is not necessarily as popular as it is, but still it gives us a different perspective, like an Indian, uh, sorry, Indonesian perspective to the. Uh, whole corpus so that is why i took these uh, five texts and architecture as a framework i think like you know within uh, like you know all these texts stand as pillars or you know as different components uh, in a, in an architecture for the larger tradition of the shafi school and you know the house of shafi school or the art uh, or the building of the shafi school is i would say is built upon you know these these uh, texts, uh, Minhaj family particularly, and many other uh, corpus that I also uh, uh, mention in the in the chapter. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for that really wonderful answer. And I think that that sets us up really well to, to really uh, turn to the second part of the book, which provides a fine-grained close reading of these four interconnected principal texts. And you trace the content and the structure of the text and its formation, its reception, and across different regional contexts. So chapter four, The Code, uh, really zooms in on uh, the Minhaj of Nawawi, written in the context of 13th century Damascus. And you examine how it emerged as a comprehensive code of the Shafi school of law. Um, you situate this within the historical context of the 13th century, so witnessing the dissolution of the Abbasid Caliphate, the de decentralization of political authority, and the new institutional dy dynamics associated with the Fukaha estates. You argue that this is central to the history of its production and circulation. At the same time, you attribute the popularity of the Minhaj to a set of internal and external features, including its jurisprudential techniques and its methodological innovations, and the economy of commentaries it generated. So how did these two features interact with one another, and how did they drive the vast circulation of the Minhaj across the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean? Uh, thank you, Kelvin, uh, for such a wonderful uh, question. I think, you know, one crucial dimension that I start in this chapter, but also in the following chapter, uh, is an engagement with the furu texts or the positive legal texts, the substantive legal texts, uh, as hardly are hardly taken as, uh, you know, sources of social history. So usually uh, the fatwa texts or the legal opinion texts uh, text of legal opinions are taken as sources of social history in the last 20-30 years. But the furu texts, uh, the substantive legal texts are often identified as devoid of any regional context or uh, local context. And therefore they hardly give historians any any materials uh, to, to analyze the uh, any historical component but i wanted to take minhaj and you know the following text in order to s show that you no know, the furu text or the substantive legal text also uh, provide us very uh, very useful information uh, to study uh, or to explore history so uh, here in this chapter, when I take Minhaj and its different techniques and uh, techniques of standardization, hierarchization, codification, and you know all sort of different terms that I uh, highlight in the chapter, I wanted to read the text uh, against its context as well, against the you know Eastern Mediterranean context, the Damascene context in which it was written in order to show that how the text itself is entangled in its, you know, local and translocal, you know, uh, uh, historical features such as trade, uh, politics, and so forth. And it is very evident in its uh, approach. Like, you know, as I take, you know, the two uh, features, that is the economy uh, and then the politics, right? So the both in both features, we see how uh, Nevevi as an author engaged with, you know, the contemporary trade, the contemporary economy, the contemporary politics, and how his uh, arguments uh, influence uh, his legal arguments, you know, his legal uh, conclusions, you know, how come or... Uh, so, you know, whatever we see that, even even though we uh, tend to see the Faro text without any historical context, you know, close reading of these texts, uh, along with the 
contemporary sources, you know, uh, from the same author or from other authors of the same period, from the same place, provide us insights to understand uh, the text in a larger context, uh, in, its, his, 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 in its historical context. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That was such a wonderful answer. And I think that, you know, that really outlines the methodological approach that you're adopting uh, throughout this book so far. One place that I see this really clearly is the succeeding chapter, the fifth chapter, uh, titled The Commentary, where you focus on one specific commentary, the Tufat uh, al-Mutash, so authored in the 16th century by Ibn al-Hajar al-Haytami, an Egyptian jurist who grew to prominence in Mecca and argues, you argue that the text performs the role of commentarial intermediation by bridging the intellectual distance between the Islamic heartlands and the Indian Ocean littorals. So what was the historical context for Ibn Hajar's migration to Mecca? And how did this comport with the emergence of Mecca as a preeminent center for intellectual and cultural life? How did the Tufa authorize new claims around space, hierarchy, and legal authority? And what accounted for its reception among Shafi scholars around the Indian Ocean? Uh, both these features are very interrelated. So uh, the rise of Mecca uh, as a uh, and then uh, Ibn Hajar's migration to the place, and also the later uh, reception of the school among the Indian Ocean Muslims. And it's uh, both these features owe to the, you know, what I would say, the global, sorry, the rise of Mecca as a global city in the 16th century. Even though Mecca was an important place for Muslims from the beginning, uh, the city itself was mostly a seasonal city where people would come there only during the pilgrimage season, right, you know, especially during the Hajj. And for Umrah, you know, the minor uh, pilgrimage, they would go there, you know, very rarely, very few people, especially it was a very unsafe place for uh, outsiders, you know, to get there from Jidda or from other parts of the places, uh, the close by areas. So uh, people often tend to travel there in, in groups and only in 16th century we see that the place becoming uh, a, what I would say global city where you know a permanent settlement of not only you know the local people but people from all over the world uh, started to come and settle there as refugees, exiles, migrants you know uh, and then, you know, all sort of like, you know, nuances related to a global city start to emerge and uh, start to show uh, up in the in the city from the uh, crime right to, you know, uh, all sort of different, you know, death, murder, uh, burglary, you know, all sort of things that, you know, show up in the in the city and well documented from the, for the 16th century onward. So Ibn Hajar was one of the uh, people who came to the city and, you know, he sort of asserted the importance of the city in the long history. And he did that by emphasizing, again, you know, particular features of the city in his legal conclusions, in his legal arguments. And he emphasized, you know, one, uh, the, uh, the importance of Arabs, you know, in the larger history of Islam. And also in Islamic law, particularly, which is a sort of, you know, I find it a bit problematic, but then it's not also very problematic if we know the longer history of the Shafi tradition itself, which often emphasized the centrality of Arabs in, in Islamic tradition. And I think in 16th century, Ibn Hajar uh, brought this up uh, more than ever before, mainly because, you know, he was, you know, in direct contact with people from all over the world, you know, from 
you know, the the Iberian Peninsula people, like the Moriscos or, you know, other people were kicked out of the Iberian Peninsula. The uh, different parts of Africa, different parts of Asia were coming and settling in the region. So, in a way, uh, he he wanted to emphasize this, you know, importance of Arabs and, uh, you know, Mecca as, a, as an important uh, place for Islamic law, Islam at large and Islamic law or Shafi law specifically. Uh, ironically, the same people who, whom he sort of criticized uh, took this text, you know, with them to the places uh, from where they came. So a lot of pilgrims, a lot of, you know, exiles, a lot of refugees who came to the place took the text back home and then they, they started to teach these texts. And there the Yemenis particularly played an important role. Yemenis and then eventually the Hadramis or uh, possibly both together played an important role. And they had a, uh, their own reasons uh, to sort of you know advance this text because they get an important place in the in his legal arguments, uh, including you know the centrality of Arabs and so forth. So the text was eventually uh, taught uh, and circulated across the Indian Ocean. Uh, and we see that you know being sort of you know celebrated uh, in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. And parts of East Africa as well, not the entire stretch, though. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And I think that just accompanying the journeys of your text, uh, we're just going to, uh, with chapter six on the auto commentary, we're going to sort of uh, bring ourselves to the context of Bonani on the Malabar coast in southwest India to attend to the 16th century text uh, Fat al Muin by Zainuddin al Malabari who is a jurist who is situated uh, in the Malabar coast. So this text, you argue, provides a lens with which to view the decentralization of Islamic knowledge through the participation of Muslim communities uh, around the Indian Ocean, uh, consonant with the growth of little Meccas in Malabar, Bijapur, Aceh, and Surat. So what were the historical conditions allowing the growth of these alternative hubs? And how did scholars such as Zainuddin incorporate the understanding of transregional legal developments with their specific cultural context? And what were the features of the genre of the auto-commentary that rendered it well-suited for, for this intellectual task? Okay, so Ibn uh, Zainuddin al-Makhtoum, uh, he himself possibly was a student of Ibn Hajar al-Haytham. So there is a direct connection between uh, Mecca and you know Malabar uh, for for that period, and possibly uh, Zain uh, Zainuddin Makhdoum uh, Zainuddin uh, was one of the students or one of the people who you know came from India in the 16th, to the sixteenth century Mecca as part of the larger mobility you know towards Mecca, and until then we see that you know people were mainly especially the education aspirants from Malabar used to go to Cairo in the fifteenth century. But in 16th century, we see them coming and then, you know, studying with people like Ibn Hajar Haitami. And uh, Zainuddin, when he returned possibly back from Cairo, uh, sorry, from Mecca, he wanted to uh, write a uh, text in a simpler form to the audience, to his immediate audience in Malabar. So he, he initially wrote a smaller text and then eventually he uh, wrote a commentary on that. So the auto commentary, like you know, the commentary on one's own text, is a is a technique that he not uh, he developed but he deployed. The technique was already there, you know, by at least in the Shafi tradition from Ghazali, 
Imam Ghazali on what we see that. And Navavi himself also has written a small, uh, we can call it, uh, it's, it's almost like an appendix, but still an uh, uh, we can identify it as part of the larger uh, genre of auto-commentary. So in the Islamic uh, commentarial tradition or Islamic intellectual tradition, uh, auto-commentary as a genre has not been studied much compared to the kind of uh, works that we have in the context of Hindu uh, Sanskrit commentarial tradition or Buddhist uh, commentarial tradition. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know the the tradition, uh, the Islamic uh, intellectual tradition, didn't have author commentary. So here I wanted to highlight you know when an author comments on his own text, you know what are the nuances that he brings. In. Uh, uh, one in comparison, in connection with his base text, but also in comparison with the larger text. And in, in that point, in that regard, uh, you know, he criticizes a lot of arguments put forward by his teacher, right? So even though he is, uh, even though he also stands within the Shafi tradition and he emphasizes his importance, he criticizes, you know, many approaches taken by Ibn Hajar. Not only Ibn Hajar, the larger uh, Arab jurists, uh, you know, who had uh, until then propagated what I would say like Arab, a Middle East-centric or an Arab-oriented uh, version of Shafi law. So here he wanted to, in this text, he wanted to uh, take a more, you know, Malabar-oriented or more sort of Indian Ocean-oriented text in which he took uh, diverse dimensions like local features such as the tropical uh, questions or the monsoon related questions you know into legal text uh, so and that's something like you know possibly unprecedented in the Islam, in the under islamic tradition and uh, uh, definitely in the shafi tradition Thank you so much for that. And uh, this brings us really nicely to chapter seven on the super commentaries, which provides a comp uh, comparative reading of two 19th century super commentaries. The first, Nihayat al-Zain, was authored by the Java-born jurist Nawawi al-Bantani, who subsequently based himself in Mecca and drew scores of Jawi students. The second, Ianat al-Talibin, was written by Sayyid Abu Bakr Shatter al-Dimyati, who traces his genealogy to the Mediterranean city of Damietta and taught uh, Jawi, Hijazi, Egyptian, and Swahili students in Mecca. This chapter highlights the multi-directional nature of the circulation of legal ideas while illuminating the multi-layered processes of synthesis undertaken by these jurists. So how did these texts inaugurate an intellectual Kyrene Meccan synthesis and how did they position themselves in relation to the new currents of reformism? Um, and here, perhaps, I would just like to invite you to talk a bit more about the political context of uh, the 19th century and of imperialism. So the expansion of colonial authority, the textualization of legal codes, increasing colonial control over pilgrimage routes. How did these shape the conditions under which these uh, super commentaries were ever produced? Uh, that's a brilliant question, uh, mainly because, you know, in the 19th century, we see that, you know, both these texts were written in the late 19th century. And we see, we know that, you know, by the 19th century, not only colonialism, but largely uh, the legal traditions everywhere were an under, uh, were uh, an under, sorry, were under pressure to codify themselves, right? There was a large uh, codification drive, uh, you know, from Europe to Americas to uh, Australia to, you know, Asia. 
So Islamic law was also being codified by at the behest of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, during this phase, you know, many Jews felt uh, that, you know, their legal traditions, especially the traditional uh, scholars thought that, you know, their traditions were very uncounted, very sort of like, you know, uh, fighting one another without necessarily having a coherent or like a, uh, you know, yeah, coherent viewpoint. So uh, in the Shafi tradition by uh, 19th century, until 19th century, after 16th century, uh, there was already a split between the the Cairo-based scholars and then the Mecca-based scholars. So Ibn Hajar being the head of the Mecca-based scholars. And he himself is being one of the persons who caused the split. And that split continued up to the uh, 19th century. And these two uh, commentary, commentaries represent, you know, the Egyptian uh, Meccan synthesis. Uh, in a way, you know, on one hand, we have the, uh, we have a scholar from Egyptian background, uh, Bubakar And then on the other hand, we have a scholar uh, from Java, Nabavi uh, Al-Bandani, where, uh, you know, the, Meccan version was prominent. So across the Indian Ocean in South Asia and Southeast Asia and a larger part of the East Africa, the Meccan version of Shafi school was uh, prominent. So here, uh, uh, you know, he thought, you know, both of them, like, you know, basically because of the Meccan and Egyptian, uh, you know, confluence, they sort of brought together uh, different opinions within the schools more uh, more coherently and that is again you know they are not the only people who uh, so, uh, sort of you know inaugurated this idea uh, of you know bringing uh, things together there were earlier attempts uh, before them uh, mainly from 18th century onward but you know in the 19th century there were several people who sort of uh, argued for this including one uh, Hadrami scholar from Singapore uh, who died, I think, at the age of just 24. Uh, so he he wrote one of these texts, you know, again, synthesizing the uh, Kyrene and Meccan version in the 19th century. And the, I took these two texts mainly in order to, con, you know, to see, to show what, you know, the the longer durée of the Shafi tradition, how that uh, basically addresses this, uh, you know, confluence or the synthesis between the uh, between these two sub schools that had emerged in the in the Shafi Shafism. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that, and I think that you know this brings us, uh, in terms of chronology, this brings us to the age of high imperialism finally between the 18th and the 20th century, and you this is also where you land on in your final chapter on translations. Uh, which traces the contentious politics of translations uh, precisely during this sort of age of a uh, high empire. So on one hand, uh, different forms of vernacular translations, so commentarial, intermittent, interlinear, literal, and tarjama renderings enable Islamic legal ideas to be vernacularized in locally specific literary and social contexts. On the other Colonial projects of translation undertaken by the Dutch, English, French, and German empires contributed to the unequal colonial administration of law, order, and justice. 
How does this double valence of translation, so cultural vernacularization on one hand and colonial codification on the other, complicate the narrative of Islamic textual circulations? And how are we to understand the different modalities in, in terms of forms, genres, vocabularies that translation may assume? Uh, it's a very broad question uh, in terms of the translation. So one attempt that I uh, did, you know, particularly in Islamic uh, tradition or Islamic textual tradition, the notion of translation is yet to be studied uh, thoroughly. So Ronit Ritchie has done some uh, fascinating work uh, in this direction. But still, like, you know, pre-modern uh, uh, legal text being uh, translated into uh, different Asian and African languages is still, still uh, you know, a minor field. Or a f- I wouldn't say it's a field yet. Very few scholars have, you know, uh, looked into this dimension. So we see that, you know, and one, uh, one uh, I would say, major attempt that I have made in this chapter to study, instead of, you know, looking at only the European translations of these texts, I wanted to see how, you know, the, uh, you know, similar attempts were also made by, or, you know, even earlier attempts were made by uh, scholars in, uh, in Asia and Africa to translate these, you know, four, uh, three, four texts into, uh, into their own languages. Uh, the major difference between uh, the European uh, translators and the Afro-Asian uh, translators were, was that, you know, one, uh, the European translators definitely wanted to implement, you know, execute what they were translating with a lot of power, you know, colonial power at that. Uh, whereas the uh, Afro-Asian translators were translating this to, you know, not necessarily to execute uh, powerfully what they were translating, but mostly to preach or to, you know, to inform their audience on, on you know, what sort of law uh, or what is Islamic law, what is Shafi law. And uh, both the both translators made use of, you know, whatever different techniques were available to them. So in the, uh, you know, in terms of printing press, you know, new, uh, you know, postal services, new technologies uh, of steam shipping and so forth, they, they made use of uh, in order to advance the wider uh, reach of the, uh, uh, their translations. So we see sort of a certain convergence and divergences in the, in the translations of the uh, classical Islamic text, particularly in the context of the Shafi tradition. But a uh, larger uh, point that I wanted to make is basically how, you know, the texts themselves became, you know, uh, a text that were part of a longer tradition were continued to be, you know, uh, utilized uh, by the new powers that came into uh, into scenario, whether it's the you know European colonial regimes or whether it's the new entrants, like you know the new hybrid sort of you know communities that had emerged uh, thanks to new interactions between Asians and Africans and Europeans. Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. And for our listeners who are interested, I also want to point uh, our attention to uh, Professor Kuria's Translative sen- uh, Sedimentations in the Indian Ocean, published on the Imminent Frame, which I think really beautifully elucidates uh, the your your sort of conceptual and theoretical sort of uh, thinking about translation and its different valences as well. So before we move on to our 
last traditional question. Can you please read us a paragraph from the book? Oh, <laughs> that's a, a difficult task uh, because you know each paragraph is uh, is a darling for the author. But maybe uh, in the last paragraph, you know, of the chart of the entire book, like you know, so the last paragraph, the conclusion of the and you know where i end the book and i think it could be like a good uh, end point for the for the interview as well uh, so yeah uh, it's from page 391 uh, the last the last paragraph okay so thanks to the gradual yet intense process of globalizations in the 13th 16th and 19th centuries the shafi textual longer durée not only marked its presence in several distant lands across the world, but it also gated, influenced, controlled, and even subverted the social, legal, economic, and cultural undercurrents of the places and communities it, it encountered along the way in its long historical string. In a period stretching over a millennium from the time of its eponymous founder, the school and its texts thus became tools of diverse uses in the hands and lands of Asian, African, and European jurists, teachers, students, commentators, glossators, abridges, and translators. In its long intellectual genealogy from one Navavi to another Navavi, that is Navavi, Yahya bin Sharaf and Navavi to Navavi al-Bandani, the vast terrain from Nava in uh, Syria to Java in Indonesia, from Fiji to Holland, from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean, the textual durée from the Minhaj or from the Um uh, of al-Shafi to the Nihaya uh, of Navavi al-Bandani, the Shafi cosmopolis of law amalgamated a complex web of people, places, periods, and perspectives. The concurrent technological developments such as paper production, navigation, printing, and other communication and transportation avenues heightened their circulation and instrumentalization through mass production, distribution, and consumption, gathering an unprecedented number of followers from for this legal cosmopolis from Asia, Africa, Australia, and the Americas. Nuances of such wide-reaching developments make, make post-classical Shafism a fascinating protagonist in the stage of global history of law. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, and well, Mahmoud, we've really taken up so much of your time. So uh, perhaps as uh, to close off our interview, could you just tell our listeners what you're working on now and a bit about your current and future projects? Uh, yeah, no, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, on, the, on, on my current project, I have been exploring gender in the Indian Ocean, you know, something that is lacking in the book, I must admit. So I have been looking at, specifically looking at the matrilineal or even matriarchal Muslim communities um, and their engagements with Sharia in the Indian Ocean region from, again, uh, you know, Indonesia to Malaysia to uh, India, Sri Lanka, Comoros and Mozambique. And uh, I, I wanted to explore how uh, they, you know, the women, uh, or the women-centered social systems in these regions have conceptualized uh, Islam and its Sharia in the long, uh, in the uh, historically and also contemporarily. 
and also related to that i uh, am also working on different projects but like you know one thing that is directly related to that i also wanted to write uh, may not be immediately but like you know eventually i want to write a book about the women travelers in the indian ocean region as well this is also something that i have started working on something that emerges from the current project but uh, inshallah <laughs> I will uh, work on it next year also. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to both of uh, those projects, Mahmoud, and I'm really sort of excited for uh, the one on women travelers because I think that that really feels such a big uh, lacuna in the field of Indian Ocean studies. So thank you so much again for joining us today on the New Books Network. And thank you, listener, for for listening to today's episode in which we explored Islamic law in circulation by Professor Mahmoud Kuria published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. You can find the book on bookshop.org and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. <laughs>